You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. The number of Americans who identify as bisexual has tripled. In the last decade, that number went from 1.8% in 2008 to 3.3% in 2018, so almost tripled. According to the General Social Survey, which has tracked American attitudes and preferences, social, political, and sexual, for more than four decades. I'd like to think I'm responsible for some small slice of this giant uptick. 2008 to 2018, I have been talking closeted bisexuals into coming out on this show that entire time. Toss in the column and some private conversations. And some weeks it feels like that's pretty much all I do. And don't get me wrong. I love doing it. I am happy to do it. Other studies have shown that bisexuals have worse health outcomes, worse than the general, i.e. straight population, and worse than gays and lesbians. Bisexuals have higher rates of depression and anxiety and are at higher risk of suicide than gays and lesbians. Bisexuals are also less likely to be out to the most important people in their lives, to their friends, to their families, to their partners. And I'm thinking that might be related. The closet, as anyone who spent any time there can tell you, is a stressful and depressing place. It'll be interesting to see if the health outcomes for bisexuals don't improve as more bisexuals come out. The uh, Christian Action Network a public advocacy and education organization based on biblical principles, values, traditions, and American ideals, points us to an interesting detail in the GSS study. The number of men and women who identify as gay or lesbian has remained relatively stable, as has the number of men who identify as bisexual. The jump over the last decade, the tripling in the number of people who identify as bisexual, can be attributed almost entirely to women coming out as bisexual. Now, that's not quite how they put it at CAN, CAN, the most busted name in news. No, the headline over at CAN was women drive hike in bisexual whoring nine to one over men, exclamation point. No amount of truth proclaiming can turn some adamantly scornful whores and whoremongers from their sins. CAN goes on, and it appears from a recent survey that women drive the whoring into bisexual lasciviousness by a margin of nine to one over men. Good job, ladies. Let's try to close that gap. Bye, guys. And speaking of hateful assholes who market themselves under the Christian label, I opened the show a couple of weeks ago with a rant about a new anti-choice law in Ohio. Well, the GOP in Georgia, fresh from stealing the governor's office from Stacey Abrams through voter suppression efforts, they looked at Ohio and said, hold my beer. The governor... Georgia, the illegitimate governor of Georgia, has just signed into law the most draconian anti-choice, anti-woman law ever passed. This is some Romania under Ceausescu shit. It not only bans abortion at 5.5 weeks before a woman even knows she's pregnant, but women who leave the state to seek abortions can be charged with murder. Women who have miscarriages could be investigated by prosecutors. And if a prosecutor determines that a woman intentionally induced her miscarriage or may have unintentionally done something that resulted in her having a miscarriage, she could be charged with murder. The penalty for murder in pro-life Georgia is death. Georgia's new law is unconstitutional. Georgia's new law also bans all sorts of forms of birth control. And it's unconstitutional. At least it is at the moment. All bets are off when this reaches 
our partisan, packed and stacked Supreme Court. Like I said a couple of weeks ago when I was ranting about Ohio, we're going to have to claw back the courts, and that's going to require a generational effort. In the short run, however, we have got to punish states that criminalize abortion and threaten women with jail time for thinking they should be in charge of their own bodies. A lot of films and television shows are shot in Georgia, and four production companies, it was good to see this week, have announced that they won't film in Georgia until this law is off the books. Mark Duplass and David Simon lead two of those production companies, and Simon had this to say on Twitter about his decision. I'm sorry, but there's no conceivable way that I can, as an employer, ethically ask any of my female colleagues to work in a jurisdiction that limits their health care options and impairs their civil liberties. It isn't possible. I'd like to see more film and TV companies follow Simon and Duplass's example, and not just film and TV. Georgia raked in $66 billion in tourism revenue in 2018, also a 2018 record. If you belong to a professional association that's currently planning a convention in Georgia this year or next or ever, now is the time to speak up. Now is the time to pull out a birth control method that is currently not illegal in Georgia, but I'm sure they're working on it. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. Also on the micro edition this week, Dr. Landon Trost from the Mayo Clinic joins us to demystify and talk about vasectomies, including whether a vasectomy is reversible. And on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as long and no ads and more guests, a lesbian who endured years of quote-unquote conversion therapy joins us to talk about her experiences. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, I'm an early 30s gay man on the West Coast. My partner and I have an open relationship and it works wonderfully for us. My question is about how safe we need to be with other people. We're both on prep, but our main rule thus far has been that condoms are a requirement if we're having anal sex with someone outside of our relationship. We don't use protection with other people for oral. Notice that a lot more gay guys are resistant to using condoms as PrEP becomes more common. With HIV not really a threat as long as we take, take PrEP correctly, is there any point in using protection for anal if we're not going to for oral? We understand there's a risk of other STIs and we are willing to take that risk in the case of oral. I'm just wondering if the risk is any different in the case of anal. You put me in a position where I have to tell you something that you already know. PrEP protects you from HIV. It doesn't protect you from syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, herpes, HPV. Condoms protect very effectively against chlamydia, syphilis, gonorrhea, and provide some degree of protection against the transmission of herpes and HPV, which most sexually active gay men in open relationships either already have and don't know they have or already been exposed to multiple times. So using condoms for anal protects you from anal syphilis, anal gonorrhea, anal chlamydia. Not using condoms for oral puts you at risk for oral gonorrhea, oral syphilis, and chlamydia. Really where you guys are with the condoms and being on PrEP and this new reality where people who are know themselves to be HIV positive and are in treatment and taking their medications have undetectable viral loads and undetectable equals uninfectious and you guys are on PrEP so you're protected and uninfected. Do you need to use condoms at all? Well, yeah, to protect yourself from all those other sexually transmitted infections. Absolutely. Yes, you do need to use condoms. It was the case during the AIDS crisis in the worst years of the AIDS epidemic that many gay men used condoms for anal and didn't use condoms for oral sex. 
because it was a lot harder to acquire or transmit the virus orally than anally. When people were using condoms, largely gay men, the majority of gay men, using condoms for anal but not for oral, rates of other STIs, syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, plummeted to historic lows. And I think we can infer there, and I'd want an epidemiologist to come on the show and confirm, but I think we can infer there that that there was some benefit to condoms for anal, even if no condoms for oral, and that people perhaps were less likely to contract syphilis or gonorrhea orally in the same way that they're less likely to contract HIV orally. So at this time that gay men were using condoms pretty regularly, majority of gay men perhaps, for anal sex, rates of other STIs orally fell and genitally and buttily fell. Now these STIs are less prevalent orally than they are in the genitals and the anus than they are in the throat. So that could be a contributing factor there. So all of this should inform the choice you and your partner are going to make about condoms with others. There seems to be an emerging community norm or already emerged community norm that condoms don't necessarily have to be used in a hookup because everybody's on prep and that protects you from HIV and the other things you don't really have to worry about. Well, there are drug resistance and antibiotic resistant strains of gonorrhea that are emerging. We are currently in the, I don't know, fifth, sixth, seventh year of a syphilis epidemic. And while these things are still treatable here, they are hugely unpleasant. So were I in your shoes, I would continue to use condoms for anal and perhaps make a case-by-case subjective judgment or distinction while also allowing myself to make, in special cases, a different judgment. There's somebody you want to get with and they don't want to use condoms and you know something about their health or you really, really want to get with them and you want to make this exception and then you're going to go get tested. Yeah, maybe then. People are doing all sorts of different kinds of math in their heads about the degree of risk that they're comfortable with in our new undetectable equals uninfectious and prep universe. And in this universe, we have a syphilis epidemic. And in this universe, we have antibiotic-resistant gonorrhea emerging. I think you and your partner are making the right call. It can be difficult to continue to make that right call in an environment where no one else is making the same call. Hey, Dan, 22-year-old polyamorous trans guy here. I have a moral question for you. I have an adorable friend who's a couple years older than me, and he's still in the closet. He's thirsty and socially awkward, and I'm his only gay friend. He tells me how cute I am a lot. We both openly lust over my boyfriend, who loves the attention. My friend recently made a remark that could be read as a proposition, and I can't stop thinking about it. I'm not personally attracted to this guy, sexually or romantically, but I've been thinking about what it would be like for my boyfriend and I to treat him as a very special guest star and show him the ropes, as it were. Part of this is because I like him, and I'm pretty sure he'd be really into this, but there's another selfish reason that makes me think that I shouldn't even think about doing this. The thing is, I'm I'm mostly interested in a power dynamic here. I like feeling attractive and wanted, and um, something about fucking a guy who's more into me than I am into him really turns me on. I like this guy a lot, and I don't want to use him, especially not for his first time. Because of the complicated emotions here, I'm not even going to float this to him. I really don't think I should do it. Here's my question, though. Is it morally okay for my gratification in a sexual encounter to be based around the other person being more attracted to me than I am of them? Is it wrong to be more turned on by the power dynamic 
than by the person. This seems potentially dehumanizing enough to be a varsity-level kink that I shouldn't touch. Is it morally okay for you to fuck somebody when part of what is turning you on about fucking them is you're more attractive than they are? That you enjoy that power differential? Yeah, I think that's morally permissible so long as you are not leveraging your beauty to get that person to do something that they don't want to do, that they're not comfortable doing, so long as you're not making promises to that person that you have no intention to keep. If you are putting your beauty out there on a platter or your beauty and your boyfriend's beauty out there on a platter and allowing this person to make assumptions about not just being the very special guest star for an evening, but perhaps being the third in your relationship at some point down the road or you being interested in them emotionally in such a way that you may then partner with them instead of partnering with your partner. As long as you aren't making false promises, if all you're offering this person is to show them the ropes because you like them and you may be more physically beautiful than they are, but you are attracted to them enough as a person that you desire them to, whatever kick you derive around this dynamic, if you have no intention of folding this dynamic into the sex as a power play game, yeah, that's your own private thing. And you're allowed to derive your own private thrills from an interaction with somebody else. Again, so long as you're doing no harm, so long as you're leaving that person in better shape than you found them. And it seems like that's your overarching desire here. This person, good friend, just coming out, attracted to you, attracted to your boyfriend. You guys might be the perfect first experience for this person. And they will enjoy you and your boyfriend for their reasons, hopefully in a way that doesn't make you feel exploited or creeped on. And you will enjoy them for your reasons. And you're conscientious enough that you can enjoy them for your reasons without being exploitative or making them feel creeped out on. Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy Iris youth. I'm a 34-year-old uh, straightish man from the West. I've been with my wife for about 10 years. I'm married for a little over a year and we both want to have kids. Um, like I said, I'm 34. She's 32. She's pretty much ready now to start trying. And I'm just not quite there. Like I know, you know, knowing friends and how their lives have changed with infants around, I just kind of feel like I need to have one more like crazy, sexy adventure a little bit before, you know, the inevitable life change of pregnancy and having infants. So I said to my wife that we should have one more threesome, like have one more threesome and then I'd be good to go to start trying to get pregnant. You know, like a lot of straightish guys, threesomes are one of my biggest fantasies. We've had it before, but it's been several years and there's some really good reasons, you know, earlier on why, why we didn't have them during this period, dealing with some issues around alcohol and infidelity. And I think we're on the right side of those now and have been for a little while, but we just haven't had a threesome in that time, even though we've kind of got some of that fixed and we're both kind of on the same page about it. I guess I just feel like it'll be so much more difficult in the future having kids around, you know, to have the time and energy to make it happen when we haven't been able to do it now. So you know, it might be a huge gap and, you know, then we'll be older and I don't know. My wife is okay with the idea. You know, she wants to have kids now-ish, but she's okay, you know, wanting to do a threesome first. But recently I'm just kind of wondering, is this just a really shitty and stupid thing for me to want? Is it coming off as like an ultimatum? You know, you must have a threesome with me or I'll kind of withhold having children. And it's not at all what I want it to be. Like I want it to be a fun, you know, exciting, sexy thing for us to do before settling down into kids and that sort of lifestyle. So I guess my question is, you know, what do you think of this idea wanting kind of one semi last threesome before having kids as a premise for it, you know, sound or is it stupid or am I a jerk for suggesting it? And, 
you know, I know how you feel about bachelor parties, right? Um, and I'm in total agreement with that. And this sort of feels like that a little bit too, but I don't know. It just does seem really like your life changed with kids. Dude, your wife already said yes. You floated this to your wife before floating into your neighborhood sex advice podcaster, and she's down. She wants to have a threesome too before you have kids. Take that yes for an answer. She seems as interested in having this sexual adventure before you guys knuckle under, make that baby, crap out that kid, as interested as you. So Yahtzee, stop picking lint out of your navel to examine and get back on Tinder, get back on other websites, go out there and find your very special guest star. I'm here from the future to tell you that you can have threesomes after you become a parent. That is a thing that parents do. Most of the people that you'll meet, most of the straight people you meet in organized swinging circles are parents, usually parents whose children are a bit older. But there are grandparents, usually, who very much would like to have your toddler over for the weekend. You may not be able to pull this off in the first year and change of your kid's life, but a two-year-old, three-year-old going to grandma and grandpa's house for the weekend while mom and dad have a staycation and a very special guest star or two or three over, that is a thing that you guys will be able to make happen for yourself. Yeah, in the same way that I think it's bad for couples to put it in their head that marriage is the end of fun and, and adventure. I think it's bad for people to put it in their own heads that parenting is the end of, uh, of sexual adventure. Parenting complicates sexual adventure. It becomes logistically more challenging and therefore rarer in your life after you become a parent. So you do a little bit more advanced planning. You make sure that when you are going to have a sexual adventure together, that it fucking kicks that it's awesome. And the beautiful thing about your sexual adventures having to be scheduled and planned is the planning of a sexual adventure is itself a sexual adventure. Most people in the kink scene, most people in the swinging scene, some overlap there, know this to be true. That when you set that date, even if it's a couple of months out and you're planning that sexual adventure with a very special guest star, you're going to go somewhere and do something crazy, you start fucking in advance of that fucking. You start dirty talking with each other about what you're going to do and then you get turned on and you Fuck some more, just the two of you. So, yeah. Now even mainstream couples counselors are saying to straight people who aren't interested in swinging and are monogamous and not interested in kink that they should borrow this tactic from the swingers and kinksters and make scheduled sex something exciting and fun to plan and plot out and look forward to and fuck in advance of and fuck in the wake of as the swingers and kinksters do. So, yeah, dude, have that threesome. Your wife wants to have that threesome too. Take yes for a fucking answer and no and take it from me that threesomes will be in your future after you become parents if you prioritize them. Not over your kids, never over your kids, but we can have more than one priority in our lives even after we're parenting. Hi, Dan. I just had a kind of a weird Tinder exchange and this is kind of like a mundane question i guess it's not that important but i'm just kind of curious what your perspective or what the other listeners perspective is i probably used tinder like 25 like on like 25 tinder dates or something i don't know not a ton but like some and i was about to do that with someone we were going to meet up somewhere and at the last minute she was like oh my friend is coming like we're sort of a package deal i didn't really know what that meant so i, I was like oh I would rather just like hang out one. We were going to meet up at like a coffee shop and I was like, I would kind of rather meet up one-on-one. -on -one. 
so we can like give each other our full attention. And she was like, oh, I don't feel comfortable meeting people uh, in public without a bodyguard. And I was like, what? So I just texted back, okay, whatever. And she she was like, your responses are off-putting. And she, didn't, she ended up not wanting to meet because I felt strange about meeting her with another person. Is that like a thing? Is that normal? Should I have just gone for it and been like, oh yeah, I'll meet you and your friend. I, I don't know. It just seems kind of weird. Uh, I haven't had any other people request to meet up with a quote unquote bodyguard. And I felt like that. I was like, somebody like this probably just shouldn't even be online dating. Anyway, curious what you think. This hasn't happened to you before. I don't think this is going to happen to you again. Meeting up in a public place, not a high stakes date, not dinner and drinks and an open ended evening, but a quick meet up for coffee. That should be something a person is willing to do with you solo. That's the kind of meeting up in advance in a public place in a low stakes environment at a time of day when more ain't possible because you have other plans and so do they, or you got to get back to work and so do they. That's reasonable. And that provides somebody with an out and the public place provides somebody with the protections of being in a public place. Not that women haven't been assaulted in public places or made to feel threatened by men in coffee shops. But it is reasonable for you to expect that that would be a one-on-one meeting. And I wouldn't waste too much time wringing your hands about this or overthinking this. You've had a lot of Tinder dates. No one else has ever asked to bring a bodyguard. You hesitated and this person bolted right away. Did you a favor. So move the fuck on. Go have coffee with some other nice lady from Tinder who doesn't need to bring Kevin Costner along. Hey, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old straight female, and I have a rare stage four cancer. And currently on my dating profile, I wrote something along the lines of, afraid of commitment? No worries. I'm dying. Um, Just sort of to put it out there in the beginning. Um, I am having a liver transplant this August. And my problem is I don't know when to disclose this information, whether it's on my profile or first, second or third date. I've sort of done both and had mixed experiences with telling guys after a certain period of time. So I just wanted to get your opinion on that. First, we are, of course, so sorry about your stage four diagnosis and your health crisis and Here's hoping that the liver transplant and whatever other treatments that you're undergoing at the moment are effective and you pull through and you join the ranks of the long-term survivors, which include some people who survived stage four cancers. As to your question, your dating profile, putting it out there like that, you're going to scare off some guys and in that group of guys, maybe some guys you would have wanted to scare off. You might, on the other hand, attract some guys who are creeps and weirdos who are drawn to you because you're so close to death. And if you can weed those guys out, if you're not interested in going out with a guy like that, a guy who's going to, if not fetishize your issues, regard you as emotionally vulnerable in a way because of your health issues and be tempted to prey on you or leverage what he may believe to be your neediness at this moment against you. You may not feel yourself needy or vulnerable at this moment in your life, That doesn't mean others may not be drawn to you because they assume you could be needy or vulnerable in a way and therefore easily exploited or manipulated at this time of your life. There's a different way of saying I'm only interested in casual sex and I'm not looking for a commitment. You can just say that without mentioning your health challenges and you can save that discussion for later. 
As for the fact that you're getting a liver transplant in August, that's not something you are required or obligated to disclose to someone you're seeing casually, having casual sex with, a one-off or even a two or three-off. They don't necessarily need to know that. They don't have a right to know that unless you are pulling this person into your life, unless you click with somebody and you become more emotionally involved with them and they begin to make an emotional investment in you and you in them, then you get to the disclosure. Then you get to putting these kinds of non-king cards on the table, these kinds of heavy cards on the table. I would encourage you just to put out there that you're only interested in casual sex. If your health problems aren't apparent, if they're not something that a casual sex partner is going to have to take into account or need to know about, going in, you can hold that back and just say, I'm only interested in casual sex. If indeed you only are. People react oddly to anything that rubs their own mortality in their face that isn't a fiction. Game of Thrones, we're fine with all the mortality that get rubs in our face and that. A friend comes down or a family member comes down with a terminal illness or a partner or someone that we were thinking about dating comes down or is diagnosed stage four cancer. People can sometimes withdraw from those relationships that can be very painful for the ill person. People also can be afraid of initiating a relationship with someone that they know to be ill in a profound way because not just because they can't handle the illness, but because they don't want to compound that person's pain because going into that relationship, if it's a dating relationship and not just a hookup, you want to feel like if it doesn't work out for you for whatever reason, you can pull the plug, if I may use that metaphor, early on and exit the relationship. And someone may hesitate to initiate a relationship with someone they know to be ill because they don't want if it doesn't work out. And they may not have any reason to believe it wouldn't work out. But if it doesn't, if it m didn't work out, they don't want to be the monster who dropped that person or broke up with that person shortly before their liver transplant. And they also don't want to be trapped in a relationship for fear of being perceived to be a monster who broke up with someone a couple of weeks before her scheduled liver transplant. So as great a line that is on your personal ad right now and as attention getting as I'm sure it's been, I think you should take that off. I think there are ways to communicate where you're at, what you want right now, what you're looking for without risking the ghouls descending on you and without depriving yourself of the comfort of a weekend long hookup with somebody who otherwise might not have responded to your ad for fear of exactly what I unpacked, for fear of not being able to end it if they didn't want to continue, or fear of being trapped in it if they couldn't end it, even if they wanted to. Again, really sorry uh, about your health problems at this moment, and here's hoping that you pull through. Hey guys, I have a friend who is in her 60s and has, for the last few decades that I've known her, always struggled with money and finances. And last night I took her out to a concert and, you know, each paid our own ways. And when we got there, she instantly went to the bar to buy herself a drink and is really rather uh, not of the mind of, of, of buying others drinks. And the reason why I'm calling you about this is because I remember being out with a group of friends, including her, in recent weeks, and she actually um, insisted that we go out to eat somewhere, and she bought herself some food, some extra food to take home from the diner we were eating at, and she was very closed to sharing <laughs> any of her french fries on her plate, and so I'm just thinking that there's um, 
I'd like to be able to communicate in some way to her that giving and sharing reverberates in ways that I think she's not imagining. Her parents aren't alive anymore. She has two brothers, and she has a very problematic relationship with especially one one brother. I really think that she's diminishing the sort of friendships that she can cultivate if if she was not so um, focused on, on herself going out. As her friend, it's a concern, and it's not like I'm looking to score something free from her or something like that. I really just think that she's behaving this way with everybody and she's losing friendships and, and the opportunities to really pay respect to the people that she should respect in her life. She wants to cultivate friendships. Dude, I'm sorry your older friend didn't share her fucking french fries with you. And maybe if she scattered her french fries liberally across the table, she would have more friends and more social contacts. But she does food the way she does food. She wants to pay her own way and take her own leftovers home. And that may be something that as a friend you have to tolerate or, or, or put up with if her friendship is worth it. Why she might be this way? Maybe she grew up really fucking poor. And that is traumatizing. Kids who grow up in an environment of food insecurity, is it called? Kids who grow up hungry have shorter lifespans. They have a lot of cortisone in their systems. They have a lot of damage done to them emotionally, to their brains by stress hormones. And they can often, as adults, have issues around food that to others just seem off-putting because they're not sharing. They're not throwing their french fries all over the fucking table for everybody to eat. They're squirreling them away to take them home because they got issues. Or maybe she's on a fixed income. And she doesn't have money to buy a round of drinks the way you and the rest of her younger friends do. And rather than accept a round of drinks from you guys when she can't reciprocate, she toddles off to the bar on her own and gets what she needs and not a part of this buy the next round economy that a lot of young people are involved in. You could ask her about it sometime as a friend in a friendly way if you can figure out a way to talk about it that isn't so weird and selfish and off-putting and shamey and just say, you, you order it for yourself and you, you, you take food home. <laughs> no, don't even, there's no way to ask her about this. Just leave her the fuck alone. If you don't enjoy eating out with this person because she has like weirdnesses around food and doesn't let you eat her fucking French fries, go to the movies with this person. Don't go out to dinner with this person. Go for a walk with this person. Don't go to a bar with this person. But stop policing your friend's disbursement of her own fucking french fries. Hey, everybody. It's Nancy Budding in here. Some of you have uh, asked that we issue more trigger warnings when appropriate, and this next call almost certainly qualifies. Uh, if you're not up for hearing a question and answer that concerns rape, then you're going to want to fast forward about nine minutes, and we'll catch up with you on a call that concerns a much happier subject, vasectomies. Okay, here we go. Hey, Dan, 23-year-old cis bisexual woman on the West Coast. I recently, well, like a little over a month ago, had this experience. I don't know what to call it, like an assault or just sex or whatever. But um, I was drunk in a bar with my friends, went up to a dude, was flirting with him, whatever. He kept trying to kiss me all night long. He was drunk, too. And I just didn't want him to. And I was like, no, 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 no. And he would be like, oh, okay. Stupidly of me. He was like, hey, I would love to go home with you. We can just talk and have takeout or have sex. Either it's all up to you. And against my <laughs> better judgment, I was like, yeah, sure, fuck yeah. And I went with him to grab some food. We go to his house, and I'm thinking, like, cool, no sex. We're not going to do any of that. He, he, 
throughout the evening of me being at his house. It's like really late at night. He still keeps trying to kiss me and I'm like, stop it. And I must have said something about being afraid of being raped or like something along those lines, which is something I typically do when I feel threatened by a man is I talk about rape fears. He ends up putting his entire body on top of me and jokes and says repeatedly, I'm going to rape you. I'm going to rape you while like mashing his hand onto my crotch over my pants. And I freaked the fuck out, started bawling my eyes out. I go and collect myself in the bathroom. It still doesn't occur to me to leave because I'm now scared. And the only way I can describe it is that I shut down. And I remember kind of thinking to myself, like, oh, I can't get raped if I just let sex happen. So I decided that the next time he would try and kiss me, I would just let him do it and then let whatever happened go from there. And, of course, I let him kiss me, and then it turns into him fucking me. And I really did not want to do it. And I felt pretty traumatized about it the next day, and it's still been bothering me, and I've been having just, like, issues ever since. I don't really know what to think of it, because I have some people who are like, yeah, that guy raped you, but then I also have a very close friend of mine who's like, no, you just kind of, like, let it happen. You know, like, that wasn't rape because X, Y, Z. And it's kind of frustrating to me, because, like, the other day I was talking to her about how many people I've had sex with, because I've been particularly a whore lately. And she, <laughs> I was like, well, I don't really count that one dude. And she's like, well, it counts, eh, which that's a different story. But anyway, can I get raped, Dan? Help me out. What do you think? Let's call this whatever helps you avoid a similar circumstance in the future. If it's helpful to you to call this experience, and it sounds like you're traumatized by it, you've been very upset in the wake of it. If it helps you to call that a rape, legally, you won't be able to prove it's a rape. But if it helps you to call it a rape, and I believe that it was, if it helps you to put the R on it, to, to label this experience a rape, you experienced sexual violence, you were coerced, he got on top of you after you said you were afraid that he was going to rape you and joked about raping you and, and placed his hands over your crotch and groped you and that prompted you to run to the bathroom and lock yourself in his bathroom and sob in tears. And yet when you emerged from the bathroom, he was a different person when you emerged from the bathroom. You emerged from the bathroom perhaps having a fear response to him. You emerged from the bathroom and then you consented to kiss him, to give him some of what you thought he wanted and that then you say, your words, turned into sex, turned into him fucking you. Sounds very rapey. That's not rape. It's certainly rape adjacent. It's certainly hyper coercive. And a lot of alcohol and the impairment alcohol can bring seems to have been involved. Sounds rapey enough to me to call it rape. And if it helps you in the future to extricate yourself from a circumstance like this earlier, to call this experience a rape, then my God, call it a fucking rape. Call it what a majority of your friends believe it to be after hearing about it from you. Call it a rape. All right, I'm now I'm going to crawl out onto the thin ice. Who were you with that night when you were drinking? Who were the friends who let you go home with this man when you were drunk? This man that you approached, you began to flirt with, you decided in that early interaction, after that brief interaction, he wasn't someone that you wanted to continue to flirt with, kiss, certainly not someone you wanted to fuck. And then this man invites you back to his place to watch TV or get something to eat or fuck. Clearly, fuck is what he wanted to do. And you went with him back to his place. And then there was the moment that you bolted when you got away from him. And rather than grabbing your phone and bolting to the front door and calling an Uber on your way out, you bolted to his bathroom. 
wrong door. You picked the wrong door. Women in that circumstance will pick the wrong door because they're afraid. Because women are afraid of men and men are scary and terrifying. Men are violent. Women have every right to be afraid of men in a circumstance like that where they are vulnerable. And I don't think this is a conscious thing women do. Subconsciously, well, they will try to de-escalate. And they don't want to do anything provocative, something that might provoke the man to escalate to violence, to physical violence. Maybe subconsciously you thought running for the front door might provoke him to grab you and pull you back in and attack you. So he ran to the bathroom door instead. And when you came out of the bathroom, maybe you thought refusing to kiss him when he asked again might provoke him. So you agreed to kiss him. And then when he began to initiate sex, you thought refusing sex might provoke him. And so you had sex with him. You allowed that to happen, which he tells himself was consent, finally obtained after a long, arduous process. That's probably the bullshit he is telling himself. You experienced that as not consent. You had sex under duress to protect yourself from worse. That's one of those cases where the woman is going to experience it emotionally as a rape and the man is going to tell himself that he did no such thing. So here's the thin ice I'm crawling out on. We're supposed to tell rapists not to rape, not tell women not to drink or wear whatever they want. Rapists shouldn't rape. Gay bashers shouldn't bash. But you know what happens after there's a spate of gay bashing in the city where I live? After a couple of guys have been jumped, leaving bars alone at three o'clock in the morning, drunk, is the police will tell us, the gay guys, don't leave the bar alone, drunk, at three o'clock in the morning. Don't walk home through dark streets, gay and drunk, alone at 3 a.m. It's not safe. Take a cab, order a car, leave with friends. And what you don't hear in response to that is gay men saying, don't tell us not to stumble home drunk at 3 a.m. alone. Tell gay bashers not to bash. Yeah, gay bashers shouldn't bash and the law should come down on gay bashers who do bash. And we should also take what steps we can to protect ourselves, which means maybe not stumbling home drunk at 3 o'clock in the morning when you're gay. I would say to you, you went out drinking with friends, friends who didn't have your back. Maybe go out drinking with different friends, better friends. And or the friends, if you want to go out drinking with the friends you were with that night, have a conversation with them about how if you're going to drink, they're not to let you go home with anybody, that you just want to hang with them all night. And if you meet some guy and he wants to leave with you, that you want them to do their best to talk you out of that. Because last time that happened, yeah, this went down and that was unpleasant. That was rape. You don't want to get raped again. So if you go out drinking with your friends again, make it clear that you are there to flirt and harvest phone numbers from guys to connect with later and then maybe fuck sober. The guys you want to fuck. But you didn't want to fuck this guy. You knew you didn't want to fuck this guy. When you met him at the bar, you didn't want to fuck him. Whatever your brief interaction was when you approached him, you determined in that split second, as people often do, that they weren't interested in anything further. Maybe if you'd been a little less impaired, maybe if you had two fewer drinks during the pregame session back at your place or your friend's place before you went out, you would have declined his invitation, his transparent invitation to take you somewhere where you would be more vulnerable to his pressure, to his coercion than you were in that bar. So yeah, I, I think you were raped. And the responsibility for that rests on the shoulders of the asshole who raped you. He can be responsible for his actions, for what he did to you, and you can also take responsibility for your own safety going forward. And if calling this a rape, if putting the R on it, and I think the R belongs on it, helps you to do that, then you should definitely call it a rape.
Hey, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old heterosexual and a fan of yours for several years now. I have a good problem and a complicated decision process that I could really use your help with. I'm one of those, quote, rare men without a refractory period, or at least that's the best I can conclude. Uh, Not only am I, even at 30, capable of having several orgasms without losing my erection, but I actually get harder and last longer after each one. After about the fourth or fifth, I pretty much need a nice cold bath uh, to get rid of it quickly, and I usually notice ejaculate until the fifth. Yeah. Uh, On a few occasions, I've even had multiple orgasms, which is nice. Uh, That's why it's, like I said, mostly been a good problem, Um, especially with partners who have high sex drives and those that get off on, say, seeing the orgasm. However, it can certainly be frustrating, especially with uh, new partners and all that new relationship energy brings. Uh, On such occasions where (laughs) uh, lots of orgasms are common, uh, 8 to 12, something like that, even if only half of those involve a condom, that's a lot of condoms. Uh, More importantly, it's a lot of hassle and risk of pregnancy that my partners and I would rather not worry about. So, yes, I'm considering getting a vasectomy. Ironically, uh, I'm also mature enough to know that I do want to have kids one day. Not anytime soon, but at least one at some point. Seven years <laughs> sounds like the soonest I would want to start. So that's nearly a decade of awesome vasectomy life, right? But how likely and expensive will it be to get it reversed in seven years? What about 15? Are there other options to getting a future partner pregnant without a vasectomy re- reversal? <laughs> or should I, in particular, be considering alternatives to vasectomies altogether? Like, are there new surgeries out there, something like that? The benefits and comfort it would give to the women I date are enough to make me wonder why more men aren't doing this, you know, especially if it's so effective and safe. Or is it? Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Dr. Landon Trost, an andrologist and head of male infertility at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, who specializes in vasectomy reversals. Hey, Dr. Trost, how are you? Oh, good. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the show. So here we have a caller from one of those rare men out there who doesn't have a refractory period. I've encountered only one of those in the wild in my own personal experience. And he's contemplating getting sort of a strategic vasectomy because he doesn't like having to go through so many condoms uh, and doesn't want to flood someone out by accident. And is this common for people to, to think about getting a vasectomy that they plan to reverse down the road? Or in your professional experience, are most reversals kind of unexpected events? I would say it probably depends on the um, location and kind of demographics of the, the population for it. But I'd say the far majority come in with a plan for this to be a permanent procedure and, and not with the intent to reverse it. Um, it's always a little bit of a warning sign if someone does have an intent to reverse it. And why is that a warning sign? Well, just because um, even though techniques are good as far as reversals and in vitro fertilization is available and other things, uh, they're not perfect. And um, so anytime you do a vasectomy, the intent should always be with the intent of this being a permanent uh, type of contraception. What What's the failure rate for reversals? So, you know, that depends on a lot of factors, including how you define success and other things. But But typically, the overall rate of getting sperm back is high. So you're anywhere from 90 plus percent. It uh, depends on how many years out it's been since the uh, original vasectomy. And then success also depends. If you say, well, what's the chance of a live birth? Then that factors in all the female um, factor side of things, including her age and if she's been pregnant before and other things. So 
but success rates are high, but they're not 100%. And it's, it's discouraging when, when you have one that doesn't work. Now, whenever you talk about vasectomy or people advocate for it, you know, the phrase that I hear frequently is simple and uh, inexpensive. Is a reversal complicated and pricey, or is it as simple and inexpensive as the vasectomy itself? I'd say it varies quite a bit. So um, online, you can find a lot of options of uh, people, for example, that will do it for 1500 to 3000 somewhere in that range. The reversal. Uh, a lot of for the reversal, yep. Uh, a lot of times, though, these are uh, they're just offering the simple repair, which basically means putting VAS back together with the VAS. Um, but in many cases, you need to do a more complex repair. Okay, you wait, wait let, let's pause there for a split second, because I do have a lot of young listeners who may not know what we mean by VAS. The VAS, I believe, VAS difference, is that how it's called? That's correct, yep. So the tube that they, they cut across um, during a vasectomy is the vas deferens. And that's the one that basically transports sperm from the testicle um, out of the body for it. So, and, and I know this is real one-on-one here, but someone who's had a vasectomy still produces semen. There's just no sperm cells in it because the seminal fluid is produced by other bits and glands, uh, the prostate okay. gland primarily. So there are people out there who think, oh, if you get a vasectomy and you have the, you know, the tubes from your nuts cut, that you're going to dust is going to come out of your dick when you come sure. for being crude. That's our, that's the way we roll here on the Savage Love cast. Uh, and, and that's oh, no. not true. You still produce <laughs> semen. You still blow loads guys. You just don't have any sperm cells. In. Yeah. And that, and that's true. So when you look at averages, we don't see any change in volume of ejaculate. We don't see any change in sensation, orgasm, ejaculation, anything like that. It's purely that the, the sperm themselves will no longer be in the ejaculate. He, the caller does ask if there are other options. If he gets a vasectomy now for his convenience and, He's sick of buying so many condoms, and he'd like to fluid bond with his partners without getting them pregnant. Um, are there other options besides a reversal that he could contemplate in the you know, 7 to 15 years into the future when he wants to have his own biological children? Yeah, the other one, the other main one is in vitro fertilization. And with that, you'd basically get sperm directly from the testicle. So he'd have to come in one time and, and get the sperm retrieved. And then his partner would undergo in vitro, which is basically she gets some meds for a period of time. They take the eggs out of the ovary, they mix it with the sperm, and then they put it back into the uterus. Um, and that it, it's fairly successful. So you're looking about 45, 50% chance of a live birth per cycle if the female partner is 35 and under and very healthy. But that's um, hugely those, expensive, is it not? Uh, it's expensive for sure. So it's about 15000 is kind of a, a good number to go by for the first attempt, and then about 5000 for each additional attempt. So, so uh Vasectomy reversal at fifteen hundred to three grand looks a little cheaper, and you get to make a baby by having sex as opposed to stirring stuff up in a test tube. Yeah, and really, if, so those ones are kind of the budget ones for vasectomy reversal. Really, if you wanted one that was done correctly, as far as one that does both either simple or complex repair if needed, um, you're looking somewhere in probably the five to eight thousand range uh, for those that um, that do it without anesthesia. With anesthesia, you're looking all the way up to thirty thousand or so. Now, if this guy came into your office and asked you to help him make this decision, mm -hmm. what would you tell him? These ones are tough ones. So uh, there's no right answer in, in scenarios like this. And, and so every doctor kind of has their own threshold of, of what they do. Um, generally at Mayo, we have a cutoff around age 30. And if someone comes in and they're like 21 and they say, hey, I want a vasectomy I'm, for any number of reasons and they um, are at that stage, we usually discourage them from doing it just because we know their um, chance for regret is so high and we try to do no harm where we can. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, that's, uh, there's no right answer on that. That's very much just a policy decision of, of an institution. Um, generally, if someone's 30 and they come in, we say, well, they've had you know, plenty of chance to, 
to kind of make decisions in their life and know what they want to do. And, um, and so we try not to be too paternalistic on that. But it is, it's, it's a tough decision because you don't want to uh, do harm to people, uh, especially if you know outright that men, for example, under 30 are the highest risk of regretting it later. Do people freeze their sperm in advance of a vasectomy and just keep it on ice for a decade or two? Yeah, they do. You don't necessarily need to, though, because your testicle is still making plenty of sperm. And so you can always go back in there and get it as long as you had sperm initially. So you could freeze it if you want, but then you have to pay every year to keep it frozen. And again, if, if you decide five years later you want to achieve a pregnancy, we can just get it from the testicle just as easily as, as having frozen it. So, Okay, last, last question, and then we'll let you go. You've been so generous with your time. Thank you. Um, this option, vasectomy, not the vasectomy reversal, this option, everybody knows about it, but so many men, even men who've had all the children they want to have or know that they don't want to have children, are reluctant to have this procedure performed, even after they know it's not going to affect volume or consistency or aroma or flavor, they, they re, they're reluctant about, uh, about doing this. And most of the guys I personally know who've gotten vasectomies, it was really at their partner, their, their female partner's, not insistence, but instigation. Like it was a conversation and, and they came around very reluctantly. Why do you think it is that so many men don't want it? I have a theory, but I'm curious what you might think is the reason so many, so many men who don't want kids or had all the kids they want still are, are opposed to a vasectomy. Well, um, so I, I would agree in that the the surgery that we have the highest or highest percentage of runners for that uh, show up, they check in, but then they just don't go through with it is probably vasectomies. Huh. Um, I, I think a lot of it's anxiety of just any sort, anything sharp down in that area just you know makes people nervous. And I, I think also the concept of permanent um, scares a lot of people away from things because anytime you're doing anything that's intended to be permanent, um, people like the option of being able to reverse things and. And clearly there's uh, been a strong desire for 10 plus year or actually much longer than that of people trying to come up with reversible vasectomies and um, you know, options that, that go, uh, that give you, that maintain that option for you. But yeah, I, I think it's that. I think it's the permanence of it that really kind of scares someone away from making a decision on things. Dr. Landon Trost, an andrologist and head of male infertility at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, specializing in vasectomy reversals. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. We really appreciate it. No, my pleasure. Thank you much. Hey, Dan. I'm from San Antonio, Texas, and uh, I'm a lesbian. Uh, around the age of 14, I came out to my parents, and being super religious and afraid of what everyone else would think, um, they ended up sending me to conversion therapy until I was 18, literally until the day I turned 18. And I didn't talk to them for many years, and recently they've reached out wanting it had a relationship and it's gone decent. It hasn't gone necessarily the way I wanted it to, but it's better than it used to be. But whenever either my dad or I drink around each other, it ends up turning into some sort of tension related conversation or argument. And most recently he's been playing the victim as though somehow I did something to him rather than, you know, him doing something to me by sending me to conversion therapy for three and a half years, almost four years. So just kind of curious as to what your opinion is. Should I try to continue to have this relationship with him? And to kind of complicate the situation, uh, I have a sister that's 12 years younger than me who still is in high school and lives at home. And in order to have a relationship with her, a kind of force to at least have a pseudo relationship with them. So I feel trapped. 
So how long were you in conversion therapy? How long was that, that your family forced you into this? About three and a half years. Wow. That yeah. Is a long ass time. How did you survive it? Um, just kind of, I guess, hoping and dreaming about what I could do when I left at 18. When you left your family, when you moved out of your parents yeah. at 18. You know, for, for folks out there who may not be familiar with conversion therapy, that those are programs that people send their often LGBT kids to against their LGBT kids' wishes and against their will to be talked out of being queer, to be bullied out of being queer uh, by spiritual charlatans. And there's a huge body of research and evidence that shows that this doesn't work and can be tremendously damaging. It can lead to self-hatred, self-harm. It can lead to suicide. It can push kids to suicide. And it really does instill uh, self-loathing in many queer young people that it can take them ages to get past. Um, You hear that often. People hear that, hear conversion therapy described that way. There's now more than I think 19 states have banned it. So these debates have sort of roared through individual states. But for folks out there who don't know what it's like from the inside, can you describe the program? Can you describe what these sessions were like and how often you went and what you were told? Yeah. um, So I went to two different kinds um over like one was more long term so like seeing a therapist weekly or bi-weekly for part of the time and I mean that was a lot more like shame driven and just kind of them trying to dissect what the reasons why could be and then once they you know found a reason um they would then have you know therapy sessions about it um so so wait wait so this was somebody telling you that you had made a choice there was some pivot point in your life some fork in the road where you consciously chose to be a lesbian and they were trying to identify that fork in the road and walk you back to it yes for the individual um that was kind of the direction that this guy went um and, and, and it was, sadly, he's still was, practicing. He's still pra- oh, and it was religious, right? Like religious based, yeah. It always is religious based because it's quackery and bullshit, and not rooted in any evidence or science or data or research. Just what my imaginary sky friend wants for you, or what your dad's imaginary sky friend wanted for you. Yes. So, what did they identify in your past that they tried to pin your lesbianism on? That particular one, it was, I must have been sexually assaulted as a child and don't remember it. Uh. And then when I went on to, I ended up going to three different kind of group um, conversion therapies, one of them being Exodus International. And uh, that was, it was still shame driven, but it was more like, you know, when when there's like a psychology behind groups. And like when you're part of a group or feel part of a group, you're yep. more willing to kind of go with the flow. Yeah, you don't want to let down the team. You don't want to be judged by people you've begun to identify with. Yes, especially the judgment part. Um, and so they kind of carried on and took the same idea the, that I had suppressed memories. and But they took it to an extreme where, I mean, I, I was really being bullied, in my opinion. Exodus later shut down. Exodus International, which was the biggest, oldest, 
gay conversion. Jesus is your imaginary sky friend and doesn't want you to suck that dick if you're a dude. Uh, therapy, quote unquote, program in the nation shut down. One of its founders fall, fell in love with one of the members and they ran off together, a same sex couple. But the final dude who was running it, Chambers was his name, famously mm-hmm. said that the opposite of homosexuality wasn't heterosexuality. It was holiness, which really kind of gave away the game that they weren't taking people who are homosexuals and making them heterosexuals, which had always been their claim, but they were just taking people who are homosexuals and getting them to throw themselves into religion, getting them to identify homosexuality as something that they had to suppress and ignore in themselves to get right with their particular iteration of God. And I, I, that's really accurate, but it wasn't, like, you know, hold hands and sing Kumbaya. It was, there was definitely a lot of shame driven and fear driven, like propaganda, I guess would be the best way to describe it. What form? What, 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 what did they, what did that describe that? Describe some of that propaganda for us. The, so the exodus I went to was in Chicago in 2009. Um, and it was on, uh, it was at Wheaton College, which is a, I think it's a Christian school. Um, It's religious-based. And I have been there. (laughs) When I was a teenager growing up in Chicago, I went to Wheaton College with a friend. Yeah, so you kind of... You can kind of get the feel of, um, you know, it was just really religious-based overall. And then, you know, you're sitting in this auditorium with thousands of other people. I think there were... I I don't even want to guess how many people were were there. Um... And and there actually ended up being a guy from my high school that was that was there that I had no idea was even was even gay. And so do they scream and yell at you? What 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 happens when you're all assembled in that auditorium? It wasn't screaming and yelling, but it was kind of what kind of like how uh, you know when you're in a big group of people and there's like a lot of excitement and a lot of you know promises being told to you like you could get this out. It, it was kind of like going to like a big seminar where you know the beginning started off really exciting to get pumped up and then there were just a lot of people giving like testimonies about how the program had worked for them exactly and i remember one guy in particular gave one and he was an australian guy who was transgender but had stopped transitioning when he found religion and so it was just a lot of these fear-based stories that were told in a very we can save you kind of light, if and, that makes sense. And what's so pernicious about this argument is that it puts the burden on the shoulders of the individual in the program. That if you don't change, if your lesbianism doesn't evaporate, if you don't stop transitioning, if you don't stop being a gay dude, it's not that the program failed you, it's that you failed God. Yes. And that's what's so damaging about this. People arrive at these programs or forced into these programs almost invariably by their parents already struggling with shame that they've done something, that they must have chosen this. And then they're told that if they just accept Jesus Christ, if they just open their hearts to this imaginary sky friend that they've been told is real all their lives in a sincere way, that Jesus will move into their hearts and take this away from them, relieve them of this. And then you sit there thinking, what am I doing wrong? I've opened my heart as far open as a heart could possibly open, and it's not working. I'm still a lesbian. I'm still trans. I'm still gay. I have failed. And it compounds somebody's already existing self-loathing. It makes it worse. And, and when you were in the program, 
did you give testimonial? Were you like, yeah, I'm seeing progress. I'm feeling better. I'm feeling less lesbo every day. Were you forced to say things um, like that? I was like pressured to say things like that. Did I ever feel that? Like I never put in the real true effort to try. Like I never Good. got on board. I didn't, I never experienced the, Oh, this is, you know, they're going to fix the problem. Cause I didn't see a problem. Were you forced to, to say that you were trying? Oh yeah. I played the game. Yeah. I, I pretended when you pretended. And when you looked around the room and other people were saying this worked for me, I've opened my heart to Jesus Christ. I don't want to put a dick in my mouth anymore. The, Gay dude might say, did you think, I bet they're pretending too? Or did you think it's working for them, not working for me? So in the moment, I took everything really personally. So I took it as not necessarily these people are trying to hurt me specifically, but what they're doing is hurting people. Um, I was forced into the situation, so I had to be there. But I mean, as far as attendees, I don't recall meeting, and I met a lot of people, I don't recall meeting anybody that felt that they were having progress. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's just a lot of frustration and a lot of shame. Because it doesn't fucking work. Right. I'm so, um, but I mean, I'll tell you now, mm-hmm. I have a completely different understanding as I did then. Like, I don't feel it was a vindictive, you know, someone's personally trying to hurt me. Um, But like, I'll be honest with you, Oprah did a segment where it was kind of mediated and they brought in, you know, six to eight people who had attended Exodus as attendees and then another six to eight people that had been some of the people putting on the program and put them in a room to talk to each other. And uh, I didn't think I would have that big of an emotional reaction to it. But one of the leaders I dealt with was one of the women interviewed and I had a very strong, even physical reaction. Um, So I definitely do still have feelings towards it, but it's not. So the people on this Oprah program who'd been through the program, it didn't work. And the people who were a part of the program, the people who are getting paid, claimed it worked for them or could work for others. Yes. And I mean, there's still programs going on across the country that are, I mean, the guy that I went to individual therapy with is still practicing and has same sex treatment as one of the things listed on his website. What did you have in you that when you went in there, you were like, this is, you had some holistic self-conception. You went in there thinking, I'm fine. They're crazy. I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to get through this. I'm going to say what I need to say so shit doesn't get worse for me at home or I don't get forced into a worse program or a residential program. I'm going to tell them what I have to tell them to protect myself. But this is bullshit. There was some what, – what reached you before you were forced in this program that protected you from it in that way? I would say good friends and like having the few people that did know what was going on there to be like, oh, no, like <laughs> – you, you know, you are not crazy. They're the crazy ones. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but but also the fear of, I mean, one of my biggest motivators to, you know, start pretending that I would, you know, because at first I was very resistant. But one of the motivators to me to stop, start pretending was that, you know, my parents approached me about a place in Dallas where it is residential. And I just couldn't, couldn't even imagine. So... I started playing the game. 
Right, to, to prevent it from getting worse for you. Yeah. Yeah, you told your parents under duress what they demanded to hear to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. It's funny that you should say that you have friends telling you that they were the crazy ones. I've always said about my own coming out, you know, which is a long time before your coming out, that I kind of met two types of guys when I first came out, guys my own age, gay kids, and there were the ones who thought there was something terribly wrong with them, and there were the ones who thought there was something wrong with everybody else. Not that everybody needed to be gay, but that like I wasn't crazy, you're all crazy. I wasn't crazy yeah. for being gay, you're crazy for having a problem with that. I'm fine, you're nuts was sort of where I landed. And the guys who were like, I'm damaged, this is terrible, how did this happen to me, who were struggling with their homosexuality in that way were really vulnerable to quacks and charlatans like your former therapist who's still in practice, which is a scandal. Well, and I mean, that is very true, and you can see it, especially, you know, with things like Exodus International. My parents signed permission for me to be there because I was under the age of 18, but a majority of the people that were there were over the age of 18, and they were pressured to be there, most of them, but in a way, they were there partly in their own will as far as, you know, at least you know, maybe there is something wrong with me. And that was the part that really made me feel empathetic towards towards them. Right. Well, the under-18s can um, be forced to attend, but the over-18s can be coerced to attend. If you don't go, we right. won't pay for your college education. If you don't go, we won't allow you to see your siblings. If you don't go, you can't come home for Christmas. There are lots of ways that people can, quote-unquote, force an adult to do something that they don't want to do and that is potentially very damaging to them by threatening to cut them off financially, uh, emotionally, even spiritually. And yeah, I, I can't imagine that there's many people who show up at a conversion therapy program of their own free will. These are people who are dragged there by their families, whether their families can legally compel them to attend as is the case tragically still in many states with minors or their family is just, emotionally battering them until they agree to attend a, a program like this. Thank you for, for doing that deep dive with us on, on what your experience in, in Exodus International. That wasn't what you called about. You want to know what to do about your dad and you wanted some advice about your dad <laughs> and, and, and that relationship. It doesn't sound like you've ever had a come to Jesus, if I can use that expression in this context, moment with your dad where you've just blown up at him about what this program was like, why it was dangerous and damaging? Um, so I, I actually have recently, um, about a year ago, I, well, it's, I've had two kind of big explosions about it. Um, one was like four years ago and we tried to have a little bit of a relationship and it just, he kind of wasn't ready to admit that what he did was wrong, which Mm -hmm. is kind of really frustrating. And then about a year ago, he did admit that what he did was wrong, but he still, he's very defensive about it. Pretty, he pretty much has said he would probably do the same thing again, um, based off of fear, fear of what other people would think, I guess, (laughs) but he never apologized. Right. He owes you an apology. At the very least, he should be able to wrap his head around the reality that a lot of kids forced into these programs harm themselves, attempt suicide, and sometimes succeed at committing suicide. 
And so he was really throwing you in front of traffic. And I do think that your relationship going forward isn't going to progress and will remain just surface and there will be a kind of detente, but not affection or connection in the absence of that apology being given to you and sincerely given to you. It is not your job. It is not your responsibility to heal your relationship with your father when he harmed you in this way. It is his responsibility to heal his relationship with you. Yeah. And so if he isn't able or willing to go there to do that work, to offer you that apology you're owed, you're under no obligation to see him or engage with him when you do see him in any sort of deep and meaningful way. And that's kind of been the extent so far because, you know, I do want to have a relationship with my sibling who's still in high school and is quite a bit younger than me. Not that I'm forced to see them in order to do that, but it's kind of implied. Right. And you don't want to put your younger sibling in the in a position where she feels torn, that she can have a relationship yeah. with you, but having a relationship with you creates conflict with her parents. And if you put in her position, you know, a, a vulnerable child who lives at home with her parents in the position of having to choose between you and them, she's probably going to choose them. And it would be easier for her in a loving, giving act on your part to make, you know, a bitter contested peace with your parents so you can be in her life. And I don't think that's a betrayal of yourself to have a kind of arm's length, distant, formal, even friendly-ish relationship with your parents so that you can have a deep and meaningful connection with your siblings or your sister. It's kind of parallels, you know, the way you got through that program. Yeah. You know, you put a little smile on your face and sat there and nodded and let them say their bullshit and bided your time and got the fuck out. Go home, little smile on your face, you nod, your parents, dad, bullshits you bide your time and then you get out of there with what you want which is that relationship with your sister yeah but your dad betrayed you you were a vulnerable child and he threw you in front of a bus and it's a miracle that you weren't harmed miracle you didn't get run down run over like so many kids in those programs do but you're not betraying yourself by having the relationship with your father that you have to have to have the relationship with your sister that you want to have. And I think that's kind of what I needed to hear because <laughs> it's, it's hard sometimes to sit there, you know, across from someone you spent so much time trying to get away from. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Your sister's going to grow up and get out of that house in the same way you bided your time in that Exodus international program until you could get the fuck out and run the fuck away. You can bide your time in mom and dad's house until you and your sister get the fuck out and you can both run away. And then you can see her as an adult on your own terms at a time when you don't have to also be there with your parents. Like your sister comes bundled with her parents at this moment, but that won't always be the case. Um, That's super true. About two years away from that. (laughs) You can get through it. 24 months, not a long time. And then maybe that and maybe it'll get through to your parents. Not going to see you anymore. I'm going to see my sister on our own time. We're both adults now. You don't get to mediate this relationship. I don't have to go through you to have a relationship with my sister. When you want to have a relationship with me, apologize. 
and we can have a relationship. Good luck to you. I'm really sorry that this happened thank to you. you. And thank you for sharing your, your story. Well, hopefully, you know, by sharing my story, it'll, it'll keep, you know, someone else from the same situation. Or someone who's in that same situation now will be able to hold on. Very true. So thank you for having me on. Good luck. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Rescues. I'm a 27-year-old cis bi lady living in the Midwest, and I'm hoping to get some advice or a different perspective on my situation. About three months ago, I broke up with my boyfriend of three and a half years, and I moved back to the town that I went to college in to pursue a new job, um, and I'm just really struggling with my choice. Before this boyfriend, I was with an emotionally abusive partner for several years, followed by a string of unhealthy codependent relationships with men who struggled with substance abuse issues. As a result of this, plus growing up with an alcoholic parent and having some unresolved childhood trauma, I have long struggled with my self-worth and self-esteem. It might also be important to mention that I've never really been alone. So this last boyfriend was kind, motivated, compassionate, loving, and just an all-around really great guy. Um, Plus his family um, was fantastic, and I felt more at home with them than I ever had with my own. Things were great at first, and we moved in together after almost a year of dating. And after moving in together, um, all my issues with self-worth and and shame and insecurity really spiraled, and I started to really struggle um, with my mental health. Um, I started questioning the relationship, partially because I I felt like I didn't deserve it, and partially because I couldn't really assert my needs without a lot of shame, so I often just didn't. Um, Our sex life suffered, and we started to become disconnected, but tried to stick it out. I eventually got into therapy, but ultimately felt so overwhelmed with my own issues, insecurities, and shame that when this job in my college town opened up, I decided to go on my own. Uh, Looking back, I worry that I was subconsciously slamming my hand down on the self-destruct button because of my own stuff and my inability to be okay with something that was actually healthy. Um, I fear that I made a huge mistake uh, by leaving this boyfriend in the past, but I think that I put my ex through enough and I don't want to be a selfish asshole and reach out um, and cause any more harm to him. I'm continuing to work on myself and my issues, um, and being on my own has definitely been helpful, but I worry that I let go of a really good thing too soon. Um, What do you think, Dan? Should I just keep doing my own thing and hope that if it's supposed to work out, it will, or do you think I should reach out to my ex? I think you should reach out to your ex. Reaching out to your ex isn't like drafting or press-ganging your ex. He has a choice that he can then make about whether he wants to reopen lines of communication with you, whether he's still open to perhaps dating you again in the future. He may be involved with somebody else. He may be so traumatized and hurt by what you put him through when you were slamming your hand down on the self-destruct button that he wants nothing to do with you ever again. And it might benefit you to know that because it would mean this relationship is really over, really most sincerely dead. And you won't have to pine for it anymore and you won't have to wonder what might be if you reached out to him, you would know. And if you reach out to him and he's open to seeing you again because you've been working on yourself and you've been in therapy and you can now see what was valuable about that relationship and you can see how you fucked it up and you can communicate that all to him, all right then, he gets to make that choice. He may regard you as the hot stove that he touched and got burned and doesn't want to touch you again. And you may have been the hot stove at that time. You've worked with your therapist and you're in a different place and you're no longer a hot stove. I guess you'd be some different appliance in the kitchen, maybe a nice cool fridge. Perhaps he'd be willing to touch you again 
or date you or be your friend again going forward. That's his choice. And I think that you should allow him to make that choice. That said, there are a lot of people out there who've dumped people or had relationships end or been dumped and they wonder, should I reach out? And in general, I think you can and you should. One time. Just one time. If you send them a letter, if you send them an email, if you give them a call and you get nothing back in response or you get fuck off back in response, the nothing back in response is a fuck off that you have to honor and the fuck off is certainly a fuck off that you have to honor and go the fuck away and not bother them again. But reaching out that one time, that is allowed. Before we get to your response calls, let's read a few of your tweets. Katie Winkle's tweets, listening to Dan Savage school this caller about keeping her nose out of other people's business and goddamn everyone should listen to this hashtag Savage Lovecast. Joel tweets, this week's Savage Lovecast featured a question from a caller who wants to create a gay nation state, which at fake Dan Savage called Gay Israel. That's a terrible name for marketing purposes. I propose Jisrael. Other options? Cameroon? Clitally? Bangladesh, don't even need to change the name. Or we could borrow a page from the white supremacists in the 80s and all of us move to one state and take it over. We'll call it Gaidaho? Moving on. Donna Whittington tweets, Hey Dan, thank you for setting the caller straight about reparations in the gay community. Never, ever say reparations again in that context. You crushed it. Dan, hashtag Savage Lovecast. Thank you very much, Donna. Finally, Melissa tweets, at fake Dan Savage, maybe it's high time for another one-minute wonder episode. To be honest, that 15-minute call about the lady's aunt almost killed me. You and me both, Melissa. A one-minute wonder show. We haven't done one of those in a long time. That's where questions have to be kept to under a minute. And my answers, because it's my show, under two minutes. We will now gather, at Melissa's suggestion, one-minute wonder questions. If you have a one-minute wonder question, Give us a call, 206-302-2064. Keep it to under a minute, and we will bang through as many questions as we possibly can on an upcoming One Minute Wonder show. Remember, if you want me to read your tweet on a future show, use the hashtag SavageLovecast. And now, your response calls. Hi, I'm calling in response to episode 654, the woman who was upset that men asked her to leave after they'd slept together. She needs to get over herself. I live alone and I never let men spend the night. And sometimes I tell them before we fuck and sometimes they don't. I have let one guy spend the night one time because he was visibly drunk and I wasn't about to have that on my conscience, but I made him sleep on the couch. Uh, If I am having you over for like just a casual hookup, I'm not interested in spending the night with you and I... You know, I live alone for a reason. I don't have roommates for a reason. I'm not in a relationship for a reason. The first time I hang out with someone, the first time I fuck someone, I'm not trying to, like, get in with their snoring and their, like, sleep talking. Ugh, that's gross to me. So I think she just needs to get over herself. I think that, you know, there is no expectation of an egg in the morning just because, you know, I let you in between my legs. Yo, Dan the man, I'm just calling in response to the girl who was forced to leave after fornicating at midnight or one o'clock in the morning. You're right on, but there was one really big thing that I thought you'd say, but you didn't. Who the fuck is going to let a woman travel at 1 1 a.m.? That's so messed up. All right, thanks for the sex. Here you go. Good luck in the dark. Hope you don't get raped or murdered. What? That's not a gentleman. I'm sorry. If he wants her to leave, at least take her back home, motherfucker. Hey, Dan, this is for the woman in episode 654 who called herself a lesbian 
but has been dating men and gets really nervous when she dates men, here's an idea. Don't call yourself a lesbian. How about bi or queer or any other fucking term you choose that doesn't mean a woman who only sleeps with women? I'm a lesbian, and I am incapable of enjoying sex with a man. I'm not sexually attracted to them, and I will never sleep with a man again. That is what a lesbian. And when girls like you call yourself a lesbian and then go sleeping with men regularly, it tells men and all of his friends that he talks to that the word lesbian doesn't mean shit. Just the other day, I could tell this guy was hitting on me, and I told him, don't bother, I'm a lesbian. And his response was, oh, I can turn you. And the reason he thinks that is because of girls like you who use our term when it really doesn't define you. I get it. Labels can be dumb, but we have them for a reason. And the fact is that lesbian means a woman who is only attracted to and only sleeps with women. So how about doing all of the real lesbians in the world a favor and don't go telling guys that you're a lesbian and then fuck them. All right, we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. Savage Love Live will be in Denver this weekend, May 18th at the Oriental Theater. I'll be answering your burning questions on stage, and I'll have very special guests, Karina Lucas and Carsey Blanton there. Karina Lucas comedian, Carsey Blanton singer-songwriter. They're both hilarious and terrific. Go to savagelovecast.com to get tickets. And my Dirty Little Porn Film Festival, Hump, will be in Philadelphia and Bend, Oregon this weekend. Head over to humpfilmfest.com to get your tickets. And finally, my latest film festival, Spliff, short trippy movies by stoners, for stoners, is playing in Bellingham, Washington on May 18th. Go to splitfilmfest.com to find out more and get your tickets. In addition to sending us your one-minute wonder questions, questions under a minute, we're also devoting an entire episode upcoming to BDSM. If you have questions about S&M, whether you're into it or not into it, give us a call 206-302-2064 with your BDSM questions. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.